This is Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss, the podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Matt, I have a a short list I want to read off to you. Uh-oh. And I want I want you to tell me like what the similarity is here. Okay. Ready? Yep. Biker mice from Mars. Street sharks. Uh, Bucky O'Hare and the Toad Wars. Wild West Cowboys of Moo Mesa. And Captain Simeon and the Space Monkeys. I think you're missing one. What's that? Radioactive adolescent. Oh, it was like a parody. Anyway, they're all, it's all like Ninja Turtle knockoffs. Like if it came in the wave of Ninja Turtles, right? Am I right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, yeah. I don't know that I watched any of these with any real interest. Um, were you, aware, I mean, you were probably aged out of this stuff by then. <laughs> these were like, I'm not that much older, <laughs> but still, yeah. I mean, I was, I was already like on the cusp of sure. I didn't watch any of those. I, I wasn't familiar with anything. Like I knew all those names, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't watch any of those. I did watch the Ninja Turtles though. Yeah, no, same. And I think, uh, you know, any uh, bit of any of these that I absorbed um, was just sort of on Saturday mornings or uh, whenever after school, just killing time until something else was on. Sure. Um, I think Wild West Cowboys of Moo Mesa sticks out because it's like the oddest of the bunch. And looking at the Wikipedia, I I thought it was just another planet of like literal cows that were like bipedal cowboys but no it was a a comet that actually hit the western plains of the u.s in the 19th century and mutated them into these cow people got it which seems like a little too much thought for <laughs> uh something that maybe didn't um the the one i was thinking of is actually a comic book and it was called adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters so this was a direct parody of the teenage mutant ninja turtles which is really funny because Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a parody of Daredevil comics, right? Right. Uh, in- instead of the hand, it's the foot, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. it-, it had a lot of overlap from that Frank Miller run. Yeah, taking elements of uh, Daredevil and, uh, you know, even like the, the, you know, the young mutant aspect from X-Men. Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of playing, with, uh, playing around with the ideas that were popular at the time in, in the mainstream comics. You know, why are we talking about all this garbage? Uh, <laughs> uh, turtles aside, because the turtles are great. Um, I, I maintain that that first movie is is probably better than it has any right to be. Yeah, it, it's it's it has its charms, especially. I, I think yeah. the, I think the turtles look pretty cool. Yeah, it's all uh, Jim Henson. Henson, yeah. Henson did it. Um, yeah, and I think. Uh, you know, the, the highlights are often just like the quieter moments with them. Just like, I think, you know, the, the whole movie for me is that scene where Raphael and Donatello, and I'm sorry, Raphael and Leonardo are arguing in another room. And then Donatello and Michelangelo are just sitting in the kitchen, eating junk food and just kind of listening and, mm-hmm. and quietly commenting on it. Like, yeah, this happens all the time. But anyway, we, I, I digress. We're talking about all this stuff because we are talking about Yusagi Yojimbo this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a long-running comic uh, created by, uh, still written and drawn by Stan Sakai. Um, this character is older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> His first appearance is 1984, and it was in a, mm-hmm. uh, in a, in a series called uh, Alebdo, I guess. Um, he didn't get his own series until 1987, and that was through the imprint uh, uh, Fantagraphics, which is a small... Um, mm-hmm small company and then after that um he jumped on to mirage which also published teenage mutant ninja turtles and um and then they had a bunch of crossovers at that time um not only between series between the original black and white ninja turtles comic but also between usagi yojimbo but also usagi showed up on the cartoon and i think that's how we both uh became aware of the character correct yeah i had his action figure as a kid Oh, that's awesome! Um, and just assumed it was it was one of the you know countless one-off animal mutants that would make their way through the cartoon. And then 
it wasn't until years later when I was in high school and, you know, had a subscription to Wizard Magazine and and I was like, oh, wait, that that this character has its own history and, and backstory outside of the Ninja Turtles. But, you know, even at that point, in, you know, 2002, 2003, when I was really into comics uh, as a teenager, that's, geez, uh, it's, it's over a decade at that point. And that's intimidating. Um, a lot of these uh, long-running comics sort of, uh, you know, have uh, reputations that they've earned and are uh, deserving. But um, I'm going to read this little uh, quote that I found. This is uh, from an article on Comics Alliance, which is a website. Uh, the title of the article is, What's so great about Yusagi Yojimbo? Everything. With Yusagi, there's a consistency that I don't think you find that you'll find in anyone else's work, and that makes it hard to talk about. Saying that something hit a plateau has a negative connotation, but it's really the only way to describe it. It's just that the plateau Usagi's on is up above everyone else's peaks. And, like, it's been going on for so long and had such, you know, when you see the collections racked up on a shelf, it's it's just easier to be like, I'm just going to skip that entirely. <laughs> um, I think I probably became aware of Usagi as his own character outside of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I started reading a lot of Dark Horse comics and Usagi jumped over to Dark Horse as um, his publisher in 1996 and that's kind of when I started reading a lot of of those dark and gritty, in quotes, comics by uh, Frank Miller and Mike Mignola uh, and they were all doing these comics for Dark Horse like Sin City and obviously Hellboy and there was Concrete um, and so I think by that time I was probably like well you know there's this character here that might be in my wheelhouse but you know I'm, I've moved on to these adult series I didn't check it out at that point because I probably was like oh well that that's kid stuff now I've moved on past that if only you knew the body count <laughs> <laughs> I know I know um I also don't think like it's always sort of had like this cult status, even for comics fans. And oftentimes, especially when I was younger and I was going to comic shops on a weekly basis, there was no one stumping for Usagi Yojimbo. You know, there was no one in the store that was like, no, you need to read this. You need to read this. Now, there were tons of people that are like, you need to read Stray Bullets, you know, or or even something like Concrete, like, oh, you need to read this. But I don't know. This This has always been one of those things that I think um maybe because of ninja turtles has granted it a longer life and therefore uh he's been able to continue doing this series till this very day there's over 300 issues if you include this space series because there is a sort of spin-off where it's a different version of usagi yojimbo in space and if you include all the crossovers uh there's over 300 issues and you know if not for the aforementioned bucky o'hare kind of being a bit of a dud, um, they made a pilot for space, a Space Usagi Saturday morning cartoon. Um, and it was a, a combination of, of Bucky O'Hare being like another space rabbit that didn't work. <laughs> and they couldn't, they couldn't get that, like that, um, toy manufacturer to sponsor it. Um, but there's clips of it online and it's, it plays exactly like you'd think one of these Saturday morning cartoons, you know, it hits all those beats, uh, who knows? We maybe we uh we wouldn't be having this episode because we would have taken the dive by now. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's a possibility. Had it been a successful Saturday morning cartoon, is what I'm saying. I think like the other thing that's been kind of uh, a barrier to entryway into this is, uh, as you stated, you know, where do you start? Um, but some of the collections they're out of print, and I remember probably a good 15 years ago, like at the beginning of. Amazon and Amazon wish list. Maybe when I started using the wish list on Amazon to keep track of comics and books that I wanted to read. And I remember there was a giant collection, the one we read actually, that I had added to my wish list. Um, and it was like over a hundred dollars. Uh, and so I think oftentimes I'd be like, oh man, like I, I want to get this, but this is a lot of money. Um, and, and now there's a lot more in print because um, he skipped publishers again. <laughs> and now he's being published by IDW and they're reprinting a lot of stuff. So I think a lot of the stuff is coming back into circulation. 
which is great. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the more accessible it is, you know, the, the bigger the audience. And um, it also, you know, they're working on a, a, an animated show for Netflix um, where Stan Sakai is a producer for. So hopefully he can have a, um, a little control over that to make sure that they don't ruin his, his, his baby, I guess. Um, so I, I had that collection in my wish list for a, over a decade. And for some reason or other, I never really pulled the trigger. I think because that one in particular was a lot of money, but also because, again, like, where do you start? And this was labeled volume one, but as we have as we now know, it's volume one of the Mirage um, run and then the, the first six issues of Dark Horse. Yeah, the numbering gets kind of tricky when you get into these big, these big omnibus collections. Um he seems to have maintained a consistent numbering with the individual books, which are sort of the smaller collections of, you know, six or seven issues at a time. So so we read Yusagi Ojimbo Saga Volume 1, which starts at book eight. Yeah. <laughs> it collects three um, trade paperbacks. So mm-hmm. typically trade paperbacks are like six issues a piece or so. I think this is a bit more than that. It's what, 16 issues of the entire Mirage run and then six issues from Dark Horse. I don't know about you, but as soon as I started reading, I think all that nervousness about mythology and lore and all that stuff just instantly went away. And I think maybe the greatest strength of this entire series is that you could probably pick up any single issue and it will make sense. It's relatively simple and unburdened by complicated history, even though there are recurring characters and backstory. And I think maybe if you follow things, um, it'll probably enrich your, your reading experience, but I don't think it's necessary when you're reading it. Yeah. Well, let's, before we get any further, let's just, let's just do the elevator pitch because it's really all we need to get the conversation going. So this, this is an ongoing um, epic about a character named Miyamoto, Miyamoto Yusagi, who is a rabbit, who is a ronin, which is a, ro- a wandering samurai, uh, in this anthropomorphized version of 17th century Japan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Feudal Japan. Feudal Japan. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it gets lumped into a lot of like cute animal stuff too, is what people get tripped up on. Cause like the, the short version is it's, it's Kurosawa by way of cute fuzzy animals. Um, but it's not especially cute. It's, um, yeah, I mean, besides the fact that the main character is a rabbit, um, and all the other characters are animals. It almost plays like historical fiction. There are fantasy elements and magic elements um, that pop up occasionally, but otherwise, it plays pretty straight as a um, you know a, a fictionalized recounting of this era of of Japanese history. And a lot of the mythological stuff, or the you know, there are monsters and ghosts and spiritual stuff. All that stuff is rooted in in Japanese folk tales. Um, and traditional Japanese uh, ghost stories. So it's not like he's just kind of pulling stuff out of nowhere. Everything here feels meticulously researched. It's strange reading it because it felt like, oh, this is almost like a history lesson in some ways. Just because oftentimes characters will interact and they'll use actual Japanese words to describe things. And then in parentheses, they'll always give you the meaning of that word. So there's so much kind of history and lore in here. And in the back of the comic that we read, uh, Stan Sakai kind of broke down his inspiration for a lot of the bigger arcs. And each thing is kind of pulled from actual Japanese history. And even uh, Yusagi himself um, is inspired by this famous samurai named uh, Miyamoto uh, Musashi, who was supposedly won like 60 duels or something like that. Um, so like he's pulling from real history here. Yeah. And, and, um, the attention to detail in terms of the settings, not just, you know, like not just the, the sort of landscapes and the, he has a very cinematic eye for, for a lot of this stuff, but you know, the, the way the villages look, the way the characters are dressed, 
there's <laughs> one 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 of the comics in this collection. He sort of encounters a, a family of seaweed farmers, mm. and there is a multi-page explanation about the the craft and process of cultivating seaweed. And <laughs> uh, uh, there's another issue where um, you know his Usagi's swords are stolen, and then the next issue opens with this very sort of serious reflection on like not just the art of sword craft but the the sort of religious and spiritual importance of of these swords and then once the history lesson is over it cuts right to usagi like just cutting through legions of dudes because those swords are important there's a little there's a little tag that says 300 years later Right, right after this history lesson on samurai swords, it's so great because it's just kind of like, this is how important this is. This is history, even for something uh, mm-hmm. for seventeenth century century feudal Japan. Like there's still this kind of weight behind his samurai swords and how how much they are a part of him. Yeah, um, it's one of the first and and few instances of him like really losing his cool. He is a for the most part a very level-headed uh, character uh you know he's not a comic hero in the sense of you know you think of like superheroes who are who are looking for not looking for a, a fight necessarily but like their purpose is to be there when bad things happen you know spider-man's job is to keep the city safe blah blah, blah. this is a character who shit just happens to mm-hmm. and there's not a lot about him that we learn too quickly, but through the course of reading the 600 pages in this volume, you know, uh, he's that classic, you know, kind of uh, tight-lipped samurai who, you know, you learn his code and you learn what he's about and you learn what fights he'll, you know, jump into willingly and which what he'll sort of like wait until he absolutely needs to do something. Yeah, I mean, for an adventure comic... It has a lot of quiet. I think it's a deeply moral book. Um, it's not always like this story about right and wrong. It's about how sometimes there are things that are out of your control and you can choose how to react to those situations. There's a moment where Usagi is traveling and he comes across a fork in a road and he kind of lets the fates decide which way to go. I kind of I can't remember he maybe tosses up a sword or something like that but but he goes one direction and of course you know things go to shit there and he meets this couple uh and the wife is envious of his life because he's a wanderer and he Yusagi is envious of her because she seems to have a purpose but the husband is jealous but anyway there are a band of thieves that get involved and um Usagi kind of gets wrapped up in all of this. And at the end of it, you know, the husband is wants to face Usagi. So he's just kind of so frustrated at this of like, I've thought this path would lead me to a nice quiet village and, and ended up in violence. Uh, and at the end, he just says, you know, this is the last time I let the gods decide which way to go. And I think that's a lot of these stories. There's, it's interesting. Like it almost seems like he only has like a couple of modes to tell story like he has a, a, some storytelling devices that he uses throughout the whole at least the the volume that we read one the the primary one is you know usagi comes upon a village and either has to help out or there are people there that want to start shit uh, another one that he uses often is this is a part of usagi's past and it's revisiting um and i think those are kind of like the two big primary storytelling engines for the whole thing you're going to get lots of variations on that like you said like he meets up with some seaweed farmers and they're competing against each other but then you find out that someone else is involved uh like the 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 distributor is kind of pitting them against each other for his own benefit so um Mm -hmm. there are other times when he's coming across samurai or he's trying to free this village from some slavers or spends you know uh, an entire issue uh, trying to get away from these cute little lizards that won't stop following him around. Yeah, I, they're called um, tokage. They're like little mini dinosaurs. They're in the background of so much of the series. But there's one issue where, yeah, he just 
feeds one and then they start following him everywhere. And that's like a whole story. <laughs> uh, it's pretty great. Some of my favorite ones are the ones where it's like a little young Usagi and he's being trained by his uh, sensei, Katsuchi, um, who's a, I believe he's a, he's a, a lion, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, and, you know, in most of these stories, um, young Yusagi, Yusagi is impetuous and in uh, he has a lot to learn. Um, There's one where they come across a battlefield of lots of dead soldiers and Yusagi sees these samurai swords that he's envious of, so he steals it, but he feels tremendous guilt. Um, so he goes to bring it back and, and he almost gets attacked in the process. And he kind of learns the importance of, of uh, not being a thief. <laughs> but there's lots of stories like that when he's younger too, where um, his master is sort of like, oh, well, you know, you have to plant in this garden. And so Yusagi, no matter what he does, he can't get anything to grow in the garden. So he decides to steal again. And he eventually realizes that like, oh, these people put a lot of hard work into these vegetables, so I can't steal from them. So he returns it. Um, and he tells his master, he's like, I'm sorry, master, this is what happened. I couldn't grow anything. And I went to steal something and I just felt guilt. Um, and so I returned it. So I, I will quit being a samurai. And his master said, oh, you passed. You, you can't grow anything there. That was the whole point of it. Um, but because you told me the truth, you know, that's what ultimately matters. Um, I really love the young Yusagi stories. And um, I wish there was a bit more. I'm sure there is a lot more, <laughs> but uh, at least in this volume. Another one, not of when he was a child, but a flashback was um, the story Runaways, which, you know, is another sort of classic, you know, uh, uh, highborn princess and, uh, you know, uh, lowborn uh, uh, subject sort of fall in love. Um, Usagi gets word that the the woman he is in love with from back home uh, has been married off and he's uh, so... Uh, upset that he's he's going to renounce being a, a samurai and go back to her. And then he's given an assignment to escort um, the princess to the castle, some castle where she's going to marry a prince and bring the two clans together. And of course, uh, the princess is attacked and then she is uh, left in Usagi's care. And the two of them happen upon this town and pretend to be a young couple in love to sort of keep up the disguise that she's not the princess. And then actually end up falling in love but it's really you know it's a familiar story but it's it's really love it's really well done it's really lovely um you know the it's seeing that younger fiercer uh more outwardly emotional uh usagi was was interesting uh and then the the capper is uh, the whole thing is instigated because he sees a royal procession coming through and he's like oh i bet she doesn't even know it's she probably doesn't even remember me. And the last panel is her dropping a flower out of her carriage. And she had told him when they were younger and parted ways that she would always think of him when she sees, uh, I think it was a chrysanthemum maybe. But he doesn't see it either. Cause he looks at it and he goes, Oh, he, right. she probably doesn't remember. And then he turns away and that's when she drops the flower. And it's this really sad moment uh, where it's just like, they just, didn't cross at the right time. And it's funny because that Stan Sakai said, you know, in the back of of the, the collection, um, everything has this like meaning and deep rooted history of Japan. And his inspiration for this was the Audrey Hepburn movie Holiday, <laughs> which I thought was pretty terrific. He's like, I love Audrey Hepburn. If you haven't seen To Catch a Thief, go rent it right now. Um, but he talks about Holiday, which is uh, a similar story. She plays a princess, and she's in um, uh, in, in Rome, uh, and I believe it's Rome. It's been uh, been a few years since I've seen Holiday, uh, and uh, Gregory Peck's in that too. But yeah, just no samurais. <laughs> yeah, let's talk a bit about the art because I think I, I mentioned that he does have a bit of a, a sort of cinematic flair for a lot of a lot of this and there there are some great just well-drafted silent setups um i'm thinking of lightning strikes twice which is a a story later on in this collection where a character uh, named inazuma who we've met once but um this is her returning and it's 
it's uh, the first page has three panels over the top with just these kind of uh, slowly coming into this this path, um, and then three stacked wide panels, each one getting closer till we see Inazuma, and she's surrounded by these other travelers and peasants, and then the last panel at the bottom is a kind of a, a tight close-up of her, and suddenly, like, all of the peasants are drawing these swords out, and it's just, like, it's such an exciting build-up to... You know, instead of just having, you know, some some bad looking dude confront her as she's walking. It's, just, it's such a he does this a lot. He takes he, he has these like really well, really well calculated sort of setups uh, to, to a lot of action scenes or to introduce new characters. He has this amazing sense of scope as well. Like he's so great at kind of showing the size of things and, and villages and lots of people. There's, he jams frames, they're jam packed with like lots of characters, um, but also detailed for the village. But he's not afraid to kind of pull back and show Usagi in silhouette. And one of the great, maybe unintentional aspects of Usagi as your main character is because he is a rabbit. <laughs> that silhouette is so iconic because you just see those ears. Uh, and no matter how tiny it is, you know it's Usagi because it's just so simple how he draws it. And there are so many moments of tiny Usagi and giant mountains or just walking and traveling. And he has such a great sense of pace that you don't see too often in comics, especially something... Um, well, this run, I think we said was, um, uh, started in 93 and went to 97 or 98. And I think a lot of stuff, when I think of the nineties, especially a lot of comics were just kind of, you know, super jacked dudes and the action wasn't, uh, just frenetic and just kind of too much at times. Um, you think of Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane and how they define so much of the nineties. And I think there was no sense of um, quiet or consideration into pacing like this is. Uh, oftentimes, he'll take several, several, several panels to build up to uh, someone, like you said, drawing a sword. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I think that whole era is, yeah, there's nothing patient or quiet about that period of, of mainstream comics. I mean, it was all big. It was all extreme. Um and this is almost the antithesis of that. I, I mean, uh, I mean, Usagi is not the type of character that would lend himself well to that Todd McFarlane headspace, you know? Yeah, I mean, and to your point, I don't think I don't think there are any other rabbits. I can't think of any, not with any like significant, not in this arc, uh, plot role. Um, and you know, he talks about. Uh, his his initial, you know, thought was to do a comic based on Miyamoto Musashi, and then he kind of did this doodle of um, a rabbit with its ears in a, a top knot, and kind of thought that was cool and ran with mm. it. Uh, Usagi is Japanese for uh, rabbit. I believe we talked about this up top, but this is a black and white comic. But it's not like there's no gray tones. It it is just black and white, and he takes advantage of using a lot of solid blacks. Like there are moments where he fights some ninjas. Like there are these ninjas that are bats. It's kind of cool. Like just the idea of, you know, ninja bats that are flying in. Um, and, you know, they're all solid, solid black. He uses that for his framing because uh, Usagi has solid black pants and like almost like a dotted kind of um, gi up top. It's all very clever and very deceptively simple at times because it does look cartoonish. Uh, it almost looks like it's for kids. Um, and I've mentioned him on the podcast before, but um, a lot of this feels like Carl Barks, who did all the original Scrooge McDuck um, comics, which are action adventure as well. Um, it, it feels kind of in that wheelhouse. And I think because of that, it feels timeless in a lot of ways. Like I picked up a recent run as well, and it hasn't like skipped a beat. It's like the same, you know, except for the modern stuff is colored. But, you know, this feels like, especially because he's telling these stories um, from feudal Japan, like 
this didn't feel like it came out in the 90s to me. It could have been brand new. It could have been something from the 70s. Like there's this timeless quality to it. Um, and you had mentioned that it is kind of violent, but in a weird way, like it isn't, but it's also sort of bloodless in a way and not in a way that like I find uh, troubling like a lot of Marvel movies where there's so much violence and there's zero blood and you're kind of like, oh, this is fun violence. There's a lot of repercussions for violence in this. I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I think this is accessible for a younger audience. I think this is like a family comic, even though I think they're deeply moral tales uh, and they have a point of view. Uh, but I do think they're accessible and it's something that like I I wish I had stumbled upon this when I was a kid because we haven't really talked about this, about this on the show, but I love samurais. <laughs> I love samurai stories. Uh, I'm a bit obsessive about it. Um, so I kind of kick in myself for taking so long yeah. to read this. Yeah, same. Uh, I, I just want to comment quickly. You mentioned it is pretty bloodless when blood plays into it it's used to great effect yeah. like when um i think that character i mentioned inazuma kills a bunch of dudes and then does that like that badass samurai move where she flicks, flicks the, sword, the sword yeah and there's just a quick a splatter of blood yeah. um and another thing that jumps out right away the first time someone dies in this is every time it becomes this recurring thing whenever a character dies there's like a really like wispy word bubble coming out of their head with their skull so if it's a cat it's a cat skull if it's a mm-hmm. you know whatever and and sometimes it, it is it does look specific to a character if a character has like a particular feature that really stands out um which is such a it could be cute but it, it's it's not it just it really it feels uh you know of a piece with the the sort of visual language he has for this. Uh, one of my favorite kind of little visual motifs that he does with Usagi is uh, he kind of tip, he draws him with like one arched eyebrow. It's an image you see constantly through the whole run. It's just one arched eyebrow. And, and it's something about it. I, I don't know what it is. I just really, really love it. Um, yeah. It's just something expressive about it, but unique to Usagi. There's always this that one little little arch. I love it. Yeah, and I think um, you know, to your point about it being deceptively simple, I mean there are times where Usagi is is really minimally detailed, um, you know, and he just has like a very simple, you know, U shaped smile and two dots for eyes, and other times it's like it's right in there and he's he's got a you know, a muzzle and it's got different whiskers and hairs and, you know, all the detail in his irises. Um, yeah, it, it really, it's, it's, you know, it's versatile in a way that, you know, something like a, a, a Rob Liefeld isn't like, that's only got the one mode. It would really look fucking weird if, if cable just had like a, like a little curved <laughs> smile and two dots for eyes. Yeah. It's kind of like that notion of, how it's easier to connect to just a smiley face, you know, because it's simple, it's direct in its emotion. Um, then it is like a complex drawing, like a lifelike drawing of someone's face. You could look at and say like, Oh, that's a great technical achievement. But sometimes Mm -hmm. it's easier to connect emotionally to something that is a little more direct. And I think he kind of, there's a lot of that in this, uh, whether it's like, characters being fierce in the middle of battle or as you said like people um, suffering or about to face their their mortal doom uh, there's a directness and simpleness to it that uh that uh that I really love he's his panels too aren't like it's typically his pages are like four to five panels maybe sometimes six like he doesn't overdo it and and even the dialogue too, like there's, it's all so purposeful. It's never like, he never overdoes anything. Uh, it's really, yeah, it's really impressive because, like I said at the at the beginning, you could jump into this comic without any prior knowledge, any issue, and I think you'd be fine. I really do. Uh, and uh, like I said, I just picked up uh, another run as of six issues, and it's the newest. 
uh, six issues, I believe, or at least in the past few years. Uh, and it's all, again, it's all, you know, the history is there if you really want to dig into it, but it's not necessary to to any of the story. Uh, I found that really refreshing as well. Like it, he's really concerned with crafting, making these each individual issue work on its own. Some of these are two-parters and, you know, um, so maybe, you know, maybe that's a little inaccurate, but y- you get the, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, it's very episodic. And, you know, it's uh, regardless of those supplemental details you get from, you know, reading that flashback story to when he was a little kid or, um, you know, knowing his relationship to Gen, who is um, a rhino bounty hunter, who their relationship is a lot of fun. You know, uh, Usagi's baseline is always pretty consistent. You know, like any good episodic uh, TV show, you know, you 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 drop in. Uh, as long as you know the uh, sort of elevator pitch for the series, um, the the details get filled in pretty quickly. Uh, there's nothing lost here, you know. By so we didn't read any of the fantagraphic stuff, uh, and and none of that is. Not that it's not important or good, uh, but none of it's necessary for enjoying what we did. The one thing I really um, regret about reading the ebook version of this is that he does a handful of big spreads that are kind of yeah. that are broken two, up, and there's no two way pages to, uh, that you open up. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh, they. I mean, you get the idea. You can sort of like flip back and forth and kind of stitch them together. It's in your not head, the same. They're often these big um, action set pieces that would be really cool to just have open and. I think that's really the fault of whoever was in charge of turning it into an ebook because so many other comic books that I read in ebook form have managed to adapt to that. So, um, I you know I guess it's the way they scanned it and they decided to forego that. Unfortunately, it's a bummer because there are a few. There's not a ton. Like it's not like overwhelming. But uh, it would be nice to see those full spreads like that, yeah. Uh, the first arc uh, in this whole thing, uh, I guess, is apropos for us because uh, the Ninja Turtles show up. Um, and it's kind of charming because there's this, they meet this um, Splinter, essentially, but it's not Splinter. Uh, and they he asks them to bring some turtles forth, and they bring some real turtles, like just regular turtles. Uh, and he... he says some mumbo jumbo and then the Ninja Turtles kind of magically appear. <laughs> it's pretty fun. But, and, and they know each yeah, other. They already point. know each other. Yeah. So, um, you know, at this point, this, this is, um, the first of Usagi's issues being printed under Mirage. So, you know, you can assume there's, um, some, some cross branding going on anyway. So I guess, I don't know if, um, it must have shown up in a Ninja Turtles comic earlier because him and Leonardo like right off the bat are like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> which is really, yeah, really charming. Um, and the Turtles personalities are all there, which, you know, it, it, was, it definitely felt like a, uh, it felt like a, uh, it felt like a friend introducing me to somebody new. Yeah, it really did. Nice. It was really cool. I was like, oh, this is kind of fun that we're, we're starting this with the Turtles. And I will say, I will note that uh, Stan Sakai has said that his favorite Ninja Turtle, which I I agree with Stan, is the correct best Ninja Turtle, is Leonardo. That's always my favorite. But I guess like they, they, uh, because Stan did some stories where it's just Leonardo and Usagi. Oh, cool. That makes Um, sense. Which which makes sense because Leonardo was the one that was most interested in studying and practicing and uh, he had the traditional... Uh, samurai swords and all that stuff. So I, uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah, he was the narc. Oh, boo! <laughs> what do you like, Michelangelo? Because he eats pizza. Get out of here. No, I was a Don. I was a Donatello guy. Why Donatello? He was the 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 one that made stuff, right? The gadget guy. Yeah, I like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you ever read any of the the Mirage, the original Ninja Turtle, the black and white comics? Yeah, back in high school, probably the. That's another one where the numbering gets really Yeah, it gets weird. really strange. Yeah. Uh, but I read definitely the, I'm assuming like the first chunk of them. Yeah, I did too. My favorite color is green because this is like the first 
compromise I'm aware of ever making. But I, I was like, like four years old, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. My favorite color changes every week depending on which Ninja Turtle I'm more interested in. They're all green. I'm just gonna perfect. Th- that's it, and I, you know, has not wavered in 32 years. I had mentioned that like um, by the mid 90s, I was like, oh no, man, I need serious, serious dark comics. Uh, and Ninja Turtle, Ninja, the Ninja Turtles were sort of part of that because, um, you know, I, I learned about them as everyone my age did from the cartoon. And then it was like, oh, well, wait, there are comics. Oh, wait, in the comics, they all have red headbands. Wait, in the comics, there's blood. The comics are violent. Whoa. In the comics, they go to space. Um, the comics are weirder and a, a lot more violent. Um, mm hmm. Kind of ugly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of. Um, yeah, and, and that kind of led me down a lot of kind of um, independent stuff too, comic-wise, And once I had started reading all that, you know? When you're like a 13-year-old, you love violence. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The darker, the better. Yeah. Um, I have not gone back to reread Sin City in a long no, time. No, neither have I. I don't know that a lot of it's going to hold up. I'm sure the art... I mean, who knows? Maybe it will. The artwork, I mean... I, I own a couple of collections and the artwork is, is just, it is incredible. Yeah. Uh, that's probably like the best he's ever been. He's really sloppy now. I don't know what happened. Like, I guess he's just getting old. Oof. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, the, was it dark, the dark Knight. which what was the, he did like a part three, the sequel. Yeah. I think he's done yeah, like, I, I think oh, he's done another one after that too. He's, he's got like, there's like three or four now, I think. But what was the first sequel that he did to to Dark Knight Returns? Yeah, it might. I don't remember the name of it. It's bad. It's really bad. It's really weird. Yeah, and just like it borders on, like visually being abstract. <laughs> yeah, it. He got really sloppy. I don't know what it is, uh, but not not in an interesting way either. Not like in a in an abstract way. Uh, but around that time too, he did another comic called All Star Batman. Um, that Jim Lee drew <laughs> and it was famous at the time because like one of the first things Batman says in it in, in the comic is like I'm the goddamn Batman I remember that being this yeah. thing this talking point of everyone sort of like goofing on it like this is really weird I think he wanted to take the 60s tropes and just make it dark and edgy I I, I don't I don't remember it's been a long time yeah since but it. I mean that was also the to- the era when he's like I want to have Batman go fight Al Qaeda. Yeah, and yeah. DC's like, we're not going to let you do that, Frank. And then he just just took the Batman out of it and made this really racist comic about a vigilante yeah. fighting. Al Qaeda. He wanted to call it Holy Terror, Batman. Yeah, I think it's called. Which, yeah, I mean, the pun is, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I don't know that he has the the nuance. <laughs> or the temperament for that sort of <laughs> no, thing. I don't think so. But back to Stan Sakai, who seems like a delight. He really does. Like uh, he also kind of got started doing lettering for um, Spider-Man in the the Sunday comics. So like the daily kind of Stan Lee version, I guess, uh, three or four panel Spider-Man comics. He would do lettering for that, and he also did lettering for Gru. Have you ever heard of Gru? That's another one that would pop up in wizard and I had a, I had a classmate in high school who was obsessed with Gru. So uh, through him, I, I read some Gru stuff and it was, it's pretty fun and charming and the artwork is pretty cool. Uh, which it's unfortunate. I wasn't able to get from that to Usagi Ujimbo. Um, but that's how we kind of got it started and he was doing a lot of lettering. And what's crazy about, uh, Usagi is that he draws, he writes, draws inks and letters, the whole thing. Um, he doesn't color it. He has a colorist now. Um, uh, until then, he did one hundred percent. It's all it's all him. Yeah. Does he still letter it by hand? Uh, you know, if you go to his website, it says his process, uh, and it's all mm-hmm. super old fashioned. Like he doesn't do he does everything the original way, he, everything by hand. I don't know, like yeah. when his website maybe hasn't been updated in a long time, but. Um, it breaks down his process. There's an interview from the last couple of years and he talks about, it must've been done over email because he says, yeah, I still letter by hand because I don't know how to use Photoshop. And then in parentheses, JK. <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
uh, yeah, and he's won a bunch of Eisner Awards for lettering, yep. which is, you know, lettering is not necessarily the sexy part of comics, but... It's important, yeah. He has 30-plus nom- uh, Eisner nominations with nine Eisner Awards, which is pretty crazy. I know that um, one story that we did not read, I think it's in the next Omnibus collection, is called Grass Cutter, which won an Eisner, and I think that... Like, I'll, I, I think Usagi fans point to that one as like, oh, this is the this is the one you should read if you want to get into this book. Well, too late. We got into it and we didn't read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so much of this too feels like, and I don't mean this as a negative either, but it feels like this starter kit into this world of samurai. So much of, if you've seen a samurai movie, whether it's Seven Samurai or Yojimbo or even Kill Bill, there's going to be overlap. You're going to read Usagi Yojimbo and be like, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with a lot of this. But it's not like any of this feels derivative. It just feels like, again, like you've, we've mentioned, like like history. Like he's just kind of really delving into feudal Japan and what it was like to be a ronin, which is a samurai without a master. Uh, uh, it, it, what... I've always gravitated towards with samurai stories in general is just this notion that in order to be the best samurai, you needed to be in touch with everything. You needed to study everything. Um, And, you know, I I became obsessed uh, when Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai came out. And I I know you're a fan of that as well. And that's by Jim Jeremus. And in that movie, he uses actual excerpts from this book called The Hagakura, which is essentially the samurai bible um the samurai wrote this book and it's all these philosophical ideas on how to live your life as a samurai uh and after that movie i picked up the book and i just became obsessed because you know as a, a, a an artist and a creator i found so much in there uh so much overlap in how i wanted to live my life in this book of the samurai uh but a lot of what they believed is like hey if you want to be great at you know, using your sword, you need to be a good gardener. Uh, but you also need to explore and, and see things and, ex- and experience the world. And you get so much of that in this story when Usagi is really just going from village to village, um, learning about the people in the villages, learning about the food, um, meeting different kinds of people. He meets someone named, uh, who is the Kumiko priest of the Fuke sect of Zen Buddhism. Uh, which is essentially means the monks of emptiness. And this guy kind of wears this sort of basket thing on his head. And when Usagi meets him, he's just kind of like, oh man, I don't, I don't know anything about this. Just tell me. Uh, and there's that joy in that learning in this whole series. Um, and there's so much kind of regret when it comes to the violence. Like, uh, like we said, it does have a lot of violence, but it's never weightless it's always about like oh i can't believe that it we got to this point that we had to do this yeah i'm just so impressed that how simple like again like how this feels like a story for kids is has so much going on in there um yeah i don't know super exciting yeah have you read any more beyond this uh well i mean oh you mentioned you picked up one of the newer collections yeah and it's in color and it looks pretty cool so um i mean i i definitely i'm excited to keep to keep reading. I think it'll be one of those things Mm -hmm. where, you know, like I said, I'm not really, I'm not like worried about making sure I go in a row and pick up every last detail. Even in this, I think if there's one tiny little bit of um, criticism I have, it's that there are sometimes characters that feel uh, in their design, maybe a little too samey. And I was like, oh, is this someone we're mm-hmm. familiar with? Is this someone we've met earlier in the run or not? Um, as I was going through taking notes and kind of looking at it again, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, we saw this person at the beginning. Oh, wow. How did I not connect this the first time through? I think that's partly because some of the other characters, like I said, they, they do look a bit similar, especially some of the villains. But I'm not too worried about going and making sure I'm going in a row. Like I'm like if whatever is that accessible, um, I kind of want to just read it. Uh, like I want to read some of the space series cause that seems like total yeah. fun. Um, and like he's been putting out new stuff. So I'm curious to see 
what the new stuff is like. But like you said, like that next collection has that supposedly one of the best stories. So like, yeah, I, I want to read that. So what about you? Yeah. Oh, no, for sure. I've been I've been trying to track down the Legends collection, which has uh, Space Usagi and a, a few other miniseries. And I can't tell if they're like out of continuity one of them is actually sort of the, he described the premise as what if the Martians from War of the Worlds had sent like scouts to Earth earlier? Oh, wow. So I, it's it's Usagi fighting tripods <laughs> from Mars. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's out of print. I think Dark Horse is starting to reprint these big collections. Is it Dark Horse or IDW? So it gets tricky. Dark Horse, I think, retains the rights to print what it mm-hmm. printed. So these saga collections, I think, are, uh, you know, saga volume one and volume two are both up for a second edition printing later this year. Fantagraphics still has the rights to print what they originally printed in black and white. IDW is printing colorized versions of those Fantagraphics books later in the year called Usagi Yojimbo Origins. Okay. I spent far too long <laughs> trying to parse out. Yeah. Where they were all coming from. Uh, the ebooks are readily available, um, but, uh, you know, I think I'd like to have one of them on my shelf, and, and Legend seems sort of removed enough from the numbering. I think that's why um, I was so hesitant to pull the trigger for so long, is because I didn't want to go the ebook route. I wanted a physical book of it. And they were all, for a time, they were all kind of expensive. Um, so, you know, the reason we did this episode is because I saw an ebook that was on sale. It was really, really cheap. And I was just like, huh, I've, I've waited too long to read this. Now's the time. This is on sale. Um, I think mm-hmm. someone tweeted it or something like that, being like, oh, if you've never, if you've never read Yusagi Yojimbo, now this is here. This is, this is really affordable. Um, it was like six bucks for like 600 pages. And I was like, oh, well, duh. And as soon as I got, I was like, I, I messaged you, and I, I believe we had mentioned Yusagi Ujimbo in our early conversations about the show, like, oh, we should we should do yeah. Yusagi someday. So I said, I just picked this up. Do you think we should do an episode? And you were just like, yes, we're doing an episode, uh, and it was just like that, which uh, you know. So I'm glad I read it. I like, but like you, I do wanna I I do wanna pick up some physical copies. Yeah, I got it from the library, which has the first three Dark Horse Omnibus. But I mean, uh, they're due to print volume nine this year as well. So, I mean, there's still plenty that's not immediately available. So, um, you know, I'm going to have to ante up at some point to keep reading, especially since one of the big teases, I think the only real tease in this book that really makes me want to continue reading is the villain uh, Jai who's set up and just kind of like slithers in and out and he's really creepy and doesn't ever really do a whole lot, but he's certainly a presence. And um, there is kind of a recap of the Fantagraphic stuff at the beginning. So I get the impression that he and Usagi had crossed paths prior to this. But um, I do think he plays a role in that grass cutter story. So there's something um, supernatural about him too, right? Yeah, it's really fascinating. They pepper it throughout the whole collection, and it's just like, what is this building to? And you get to the end, and you're like, oh wait, we didn't. We didn't see the outcome of that. Yeah, he, um, yeah, it isn't, didn't he say he's like a vessel for the gods or something? Yeah. I mean, you know, he seems r- r- to think that whatever he's doing is righteous, but he's strikes everybody else as fucking terrifying. So, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens when those two finally cross swords. Yeah, and I guess the, um, the Netflix series is not about Usagi. Um, it's about, um, he's a descendant of Usagi. Uh, and is I think it's a, are they doing a space Usagi thing with it? Uh, it takes place in the future, so it doesn't say it's in space. But um, his name is uh, Yuchi, I believe. Y U I C H I. He's a descendant of Usagi, um, and he wants to become a samurai. Uh, but I guess there's like a team hmm. of other people that he he fights with. There's like a bounty hunter and ninja and faithful pet lizard this says so i don't know we'll, we'll see i mean it says it's produced with uh, stan sakai so hopefully like there's a little bit of control it looks like it's the people that are in charge of it are the same people that did that uh, that series 
uh, Netflix um, Troll Hunters, which is the Guillermo del, del Toro series, um, which mm-hmm. I watched the first season of um, just out of curiosity because of del Toro. Um, and, it, it, you know, it had its charms, um, you know, in, in, in an ideal world. I mean, um, uh, a Miyazaki directed uh, Usagi Yojimbo would be just, you know, heaven, especially like with those beautiful sure. watercolor backgrounds. Um that uh that they're so synonymous with although i just learned i don't know Mm -hmm. why i just learned this recently but his next movie that he came out of retirement for is computer animated which breaks my heart just a little bit um so yeah but i have to admit i mean if if that's what brought him out of retirement i'm pretty curious because he's been pretty outspoken and defiantly anti-computer animation there's a new ghibli movie coming out um in February, I can't remember the name of it, but his son directed it, uh, and that is also computer animated, uh, mm-hmm. and it looks awful. I mean, I don't. The style of it looks really bad. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know. Huh. Uh, I, I watched the trailer last night, and um, yeah, I was really bummed. It just looks stiff. Yeah. And, and, well, and, well, you should. I know I texted you about this, but you should check out my neighbors, the Yamadas. Yeah, I added um, it to my list. Not Miyazaki, yeah. but it, it's. Uh, um, Takahata, I believe, is yeah. the director's name. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's so fun and charming, and you know, it, it it feels like a comic strip. It's based off of a Japanese comic strip, apparently, and it's you know, quick like setup punchline, setup punchline. It's just these vignettes of this, you know, very likable but kind of gruff, rough around the edges family. Um, you know, they they all love each other, but they also are super fed up with each other most of the time. <laughs> it, it's just. Uh, and the it's it's so different from anything else that the studio has done visually. It's really um, it's really charming. Oh, cool! Yeah, I, I added it to my list. So uh, um, <laughs> we've really kind of gone all over the place today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I that's a thing. Like with with a lot of samurai, samurai stories, they feel like the foundation of so much of what we both love. Um, mm-hmm. I mean. Star Wars is a samurai story uh, and yeah. without realizing that as a kid but getting older and realizing that or learning that Lucas literally lifted the story from Hidden Fortress to use for A New Hope um, it's the same setup they're going to rescue a princess from uh, instead of the Death Star it's a castle and, and it's told through the story of two peasants uh, as opposed to two droids um, and they're a samurai and so the backbone for all that is there. And obviously uh, the sixties and seventies Westerns were inspired by seven samurai and Yojimbo and a lot of Kurosawa and all that DNA is all kind of built in there. And, and, you know, from that to, again, to kill bill, uh, it's all like some of my favorite stories. (laughs) So, and, and this feels like a lot, like, again, just so steeped in history. So it's so, so, uh, fun to, to to read where would you suggest someone go next oh man i mean i just mentioned (laughs) like eight billion things but yeah i mean i do want to mention two things um one of which is uh lone wolf and cub um which i may have mentioned before but mandalorian is so so popular that if if you dig that you should check out lone wolf and cub um which is a samurai story uh, about a samurai whose whose wife was m- murdered by his former um, uh, his former feudal lord, um, and then his son survives, and he goes up to his son and he says, "Choose. You choose the ball or you choose the sword. You know, the sword is the way of the samurai in a life of death." And of course, the kid chooses the sword. So he travels feudal Japan with his son in a little uh, baby carriage uh, and fights samurais on the way. Um, it's like a six-part series. Uh, it's so fun. It's so bloody and over the top. There is a, a an American, not version, but basically in the 70s, because this stuff was so popular, it was the late 70s, early 80s, they took the first two Lone Wolf and Cub movies and they edited them into one. It's called Shogun Assassin. Uh, and it's got this great synth score. Uh, and the overdub is pretty fun, but a lot of the dialogue in this movie and sounds in it were sampled and used in Jizza, um, his first solo record. 
Uh, so all these things are interconnected and I love it. Um, but that's a great samurai story. I do think like the next step uh, from Usagi Yojimbo has to be Samurai Jack, um, which is has some of the best action sequences uh, on any animated show or movie ever um, by the great uh, Gendy Tartakovsky. And I, I believe I've talked about my love for him on the podcast in the past. But Samurai Jack is just so much fun. And that's a samurai from feudal Japan that gets stuck in the future. Yeah, so he's trying to, Samurai Jack's trying to make his way back home from the future and he's fighting his mortal enemy, Aku. And uh, a lot like Usagi Ujimbo, it's, um, it really takes its time uh, building up to the action sequences. Um, I love it. I think it's it's so great. What about you? Uh, yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to detour. Neither of these are samurai, but they are two um, dark horse publications. One's uh, a similar sort of familiar deep cut like Usagi. Um, And you mentioned it earlier, actually, Concrete, Um, which I just I've had the first volume for years and only just uh, (laughs) I don't think I've ever read more than 100 pages in it, but I read more than that today. Um, It's really interesting. It's about just this kind of regular guy whose brain is put into this giant stone body. Uh, Outside of that, it's not especially supernatural. It's very down to earth. And it's about him just sort of being this, you know, accidental celebrity um, going on adventures because now he has this indestructible body and he can. Uh, But it's really... Uh, the artwork is just really lovely. Paul Chadwick, who created the character and draws it and, and writes it, it's um, yeah, it's it's really unlike anything else. Um, you know, especially talking about the the era of comics that it originated from the the late eighties, nineties. You know, in other hands, this giant rock guy would have just been punching dudes and <laughs> getting into scraps. Yeah. But concrete's not about that. It's um. It's pretty cool. Um, and the other one is actually, uh, so Dark Horse is the American publisher of Akira, oh, which yeah. is is another uh, uh, expansive, intimidating uh, collection of comics. Uh, unlike Usagi, it does have an ending. Um, if you've seen the movie and are familiar with it, the comic was not done when they made the movie. Uh, the The creator of the comic directed the movie as well, so he was able to sort of put his own bow on it. Uh, it wasn't kind of like a Game of Thrones situation, but the comic is meticulously detailed and really gets into the heads of characters who just kind of show up as background in the film, but have these really complex lives and it all grows and, and expands in ways that are surprising and just super cool. And um, I read it a number of years ago and I'm due for a reread. It's um, six big volumes, but... Uh, it's worth checking out. It could be... Uh, I've never read the comic. I love the movie. Oh, really? Could be a future episode. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah, um, yeah see? I mean, I'd love... I'd, <laughs> I'd love to read it again. And I think, um, you know, like Usagi, which is so indebted to Japanese history, um, this is, you know, uh, so, you know, singularly a Japanese story as well. Um, yeah, it's really great. So what are we talking about next time? We're going to talk about MF Doom. Cool. We're, we're in, specifically, we're talking about um, the record Mad Villainy, which he did with Mad Lib. Uh, and the two of them, they're like a super group, and, and um, they're called Mad Villain together. So uh, it's all of a piece. He recently passed away, which was a major bummer because he's pretty young, um, but he's this crazy talent. Um, always performed with a mask pretty strange dude but like an incredible uh lyricist and and it's a great record which i think has a lot of ties to a lot of the things we were actually talking about today a lot of pop culture um yeah i think it's great i think you're gonna like it nice yeah i've never listened so i'm looking forward to it yeah and and we'll get into him and his history and mad lib and all that other stuff then too cool see you then sounds great Thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at What Did We Miss? 
and you can send us an email at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks, as always, to the What's Your Writers Club in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. You can learn more about them at whatcheerclub.org, and you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.org.